Hello everyone, this is Pastor Jay Tyler from Holt Assembly of God, and I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast of Life in the Spirit. I pray that you are challenged, blessed, and encouraged as you hear God's Word shared in this message. Today is part seven of our Holy Spirit series, and uh, today's message is really just an introduction to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, kind of a foundational message uh, for next week's message as well, the following messages. But let's start off this uh, message by asking this question. Uh, what defines a denomination, fellowship, whatever you want to call it, or a local church, or even an individual as Pentecostal? So what, what defines a person or a church or an organization as Pentecostal? And attending a Pentecostal church doesn't make you uh, Pentecostal any more than going to McDonald's. Uh, going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac, right? So Pentecost isn't defined by the sign that's outside uh, of our door. Uh, obviously, the Assemblies of God is a Pentecostal fellowship, uh, but that sign doesn't determine uh, who we are. Just because there's a sign out there that identifies us as Pentecostal doesn't make us Pentecostal. So an individual or a church isn't Pentecostal because of the songs they sing, um, or maybe it's by the way they express their worship. Uh, Pentecost isn't a style, nor is it a method. Uh, I had a, a Baptist preacher in our area tell me this once. He goes, my church is more Baptocostal than it is Baptist. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, do you preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He goes, no. I said, okay. I said, well, uh, do you give your people uh, the opportunity to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He said, no. I said, is there anything that happens in your church that resembles what took place in the book of Acts? Is there any experience that you can point to that say that was a Pentecostal experience for your church? He said, no. I said, well, that's easy. You're not Baptocostal. I said, you're Baptist. His idea of, of Pentecost was this, and, and, I, and I'm amazed as a pastor, you know, I love, to, I love to study, and I love to study what other denominations believe. I, I, I just, for me, it's just kind of fun. But anyways, I, I thought maybe he was the same way, but apparently his view of Pentecost was this, lifting your hands during worship, clapping your hands during worship. Uh, if someone, if he was preaching and, and he was getting excited and the people said amen, he thought, oh man, we're, we're more Pentecostal than we are Baptists. He said, no, you're Baptist. You're just doing what the Bible says to do during worship, right? Has nothing to do with your expression. Has nothing to do with our methods. You can clap your hands in a Baptist church, Methodist church, it don't matter. That doesn't make you Pentecostal. I can, as a pastor, I can jump pew, scream, shout, holler. That doesn't make me any more Pentecostal than any other pastor. So Pentecost is not a style nor a method, but isn't that funny? That's what we identify as Pentecost. has nothing to do with Pentecost. So it's, it's kind of a, something we fight against sometimes, but we think Pentecost are more in those terms when Pentecost really should be about uh, what we believe, what we experience, and what we pursue. So what identifies a church or a believer as Pentecostal is their belief, it's their pursuit, and their experience of this, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a promised experience, and it's separate and distinct from new birth. So the only prerequisites for receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit is first, new birth. You must be born again in order to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Second one is this, faith. You just simply need faith. Listen to what Jesus said. I think this is important to establish this, because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to uh, folks in our area with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you're more Baptist, you understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit like this. Well, when I got saved, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we like to say, no, 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 no. Let's look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? 
So John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to him, this is, here, of course, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So let's just start there at that point. It's an important point to start when you're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Jesus goes on and says this, do not marvel that I've said, look at these words, you must be born again. Now, Jesus didn't say it might be a good idea if you're born again, or if you feel like being born again. If the emphasis is this, you must be born again. Those are pretty strong, strong terms. Again, he said earlier, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So when, we, when did the disciples experience new birth? Because this is very important to establish when you're discussing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you're like, well, what's, what's the connection of the two? Remember this, you must be born again in order to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So that's why you have to start there. So let's look where the, the, the disciples experienced new birth. This is in John chapter 20, verse 19. And this is on the evening of the resurrection. If you're kind of trying to put it in context or chrono chronological view, uh, this, is, this event is taking place on the evening of Jesus' resurrection. So verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, um, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. He didn't use the door, he just showed up, okay? Because he's resurrected, he has a glorified body. And when he said this to them, and just to kind of give you proof where, where we're at here, look what he does. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, again, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Verse 22, and when he had said this, look at this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus breathes on the disciples and receives the Holy Spirit, that is the moment they are born again. I mean, they can't be born again prior to this because Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't went to the cross. He hasn't been able to give the Holy Spirit until he makes payment or atonement for sins. So there's no way of capable of being born again until this takes place. So what does Jesus do? First things first, those guys aren't saved. They're not born again. The first thing I want to do is make sure my disciples, my, my closest followers are born again. So first things first, they need to receive the Holy Spirit. They need to be born again. So this is the moment when the disciples are born again. Let's go on to this, um, because the, the separation between new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is very distinct here, because they were not baptized in the Holy Spirit at this point. In fact, right before Jesus ascends into heaven 40 days later, this is what he says, Acts 1-3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days, and speaking on things pertaining to the kingdom of God. First and foremost, just look at this for a second before we go any further. Jesus taught his disciples after he's resurrected for the next 40 days. So he spends 40 days on earth, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And the first thing when I look at that, I'm thinking, why does he have to spend 40 days teaching them about the, the, the kingdom of God? He's just spent three to three and a half years. Why does he have to spend another 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God? And, and here's the, the easy answer. They weren't born again prior to this. Have you ever talked to people who aren't born again about the Bible or spiritual things? You might as well be talking to that wall. Before you were born again, and someone would try to speak to you about the Bible, or maybe something that you didn't quite agree with from the Word, even though it's clearly in the Word, 
and try to speak to you about it, and you're like, I'm not going to receive it because it just doesn't line up with what's going on here. And the reason why it's not going lining up with what's going on here is because you're not born again. That's why. So Jesus takes the next 40 days, and he speaks to them because prior to this, they were spiritually discerned, unable to understand uh, what Jesus was saying. There are several times in the Gospels where Jesus would say things to the disciples, and they would just say, we don't understand what you're saying. You know, we don't get what you're trying to say. Paul talks about it this way. When a person's not born again and they try to, try to receive spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor he, can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Every one of us before new birth were spiritually discerned. We're unable to fully understand know, or know or, or understand revealed truth to us. But when we experience new birth, we become a new person. We are born again. Uh, we are spiritually made alive. We can understand the truth that is being revealed to us. If, you, if you're like me, I love to watch um, <clears throat> documentaries. I love to watch the History Channel. I love it around Christmas time or Easter or, or religious holidays. You know, the uh, uh, History Channel will run programming that uh, kind of uh, uh, goes along with those holidays. And I, it amazes me that the History Channel is one of those examples uh, where they'll have a program and they'll have these Bible experts. And these Bible experts are religious uh, uh, professors or or they're historians, but they're not born-again believers. Why don't you get some good born-again believers to talk about the Bible and what's taking place, rather than somebody who has just studied religions? Because that person, unless they are born-again, they can have all the education in the world they want. And I'll give you an example of how they mess things up. Here's a great one. Uh, I've seen this uh, one time on the History Channel. Uh, they, they talked about the miracles of God and how the miracles of God can be explained for natural... For natural <laughs> For natural phenomenons. I'll get that out here in a second. So a natural phenomenon can give the excuse of what took place rather than a miracle. And one of them is the Red Sea. The Israelites crossing through the Red Sea. Of course, God parts the waters. They walk through on dry land. They go across. So what they'll do is they'll say, well, I've seen this as one example. Um, it was the Sea of Reeds, meaning that the, the water was shallow, shallow enough for them to pass through. And they'll try to say, well, low tide, different things they were able to pass through. And I was like, you big dummies, you're creating more of a miracle. Because thousands of Egyptian soldiers were chasing after and were drowned in knee-deep water then? I mean, think about that. They're trying to talk about how the waters were part of it, but they skip over the part about the Egyptians who were pursuing them were drowned in the waters. I mean, in my opinion, you're just creating more of a miracle by doing that. Trying to explain it with a natural phenomenon. Of course, they don't talk about that part. They skip that part, and they just talk about the waters. Why is that? Because these are people trying to explain the Word of God that are spiritually discerned. They don't understand truth. And each and every one of us were like that. None of us were born with the knowledge of God. All of us were born sinners, and all of us were spiritually discerned. So the, the disciples were the same. These people spent three and three and a half years with Jesus but Jesus still has to take the next 40 days because they're born again at this point. They have the Spirit of God within them, and they're able to understand and receive truth at this point. And there's people in our community just like this. They have religion, 
they have knowledge about God. They, they don't, oh, I know about Jesus. I know all the stories. I know the whole Bible from Job to Malachi. Some of you, it's getting, okay, there he is. Coffee's kicking in finally. Job to Malachi, Job to Malachi. But uh, people in our community are like this. They have a lot of knowledge, or they think they have a lot of knowledge about God, but they just simply have religion. Spiritually, they're discerned because they aren't born again. So their understanding of the Bible isn't, is, isn't, uh, it's, it's not based on their relationship with God that they have. It's simply based on what they've been taught or what's been spoken to them rather than a revealed truth within them. I don't know about you. Uh, I understand what it was like to read the Bible before I was born again. And I understand what it was like reading the Bible after I was born again. It's completely different. The disciples had limited understanding and knowledge of God prior to new birth. But Jesus doesn't have to take another three, three and a half years with them. He can just simply spend 40 days with them. 40 days to get through what he was trying to get through them three, three and a half years. Again, there are plenty of people like this in our community. They're around Jesus. They're around Christianity. But being around Jesus isn't the same as being in relationship with him, being born again. So after the disciples experienced new birth, they could understand what Jesus was teaching because the Holy Spirit would reveal that truth to them. They were able to receive truth and understand truth. So these are the final words that Jesus speaks to his disciples. He's taken 40 days with them, and I think the last words would be some of the most important words you'd want to speak to your disciples, right? So the, the thing I want to impress on you the most before I leave, here it is. This is what Jesus said to the disciples right before he ascends into heaven. So Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, he didn't suggest, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he have said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with or in, either way, it doesn't matter how the Greek works, with or in the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So clearly they're born again, but they have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says, you, you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You'll receive this promise not many days from now. Well, how many days? I'm not going to tell you. You just have to wait. You have to seek me. You have to, you have to search, you know. So Jesus instructs the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Again, at this point, they're born again, but they've not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, some Christians believe the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are one and the same event. But as we clearly, hear, clearly see here, there's a distinction that takes place between the two. You can be born again and immediately baptized in the Holy Spirit. Nothing wrong with that. I think that's the way it should happen. But there's a clear distinction between the two. And we see that really uh, example for us here in this example. Let's go on to verses 6 uh, through 8. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his authority. But here it is. He goes, and, and you know what? Establishing his kingdom is going to take place. The, they're, they're talking about, they understood that Jesus was coming to rule as king. He's like, let's not worry about that right now. This is the most important thing. This is what you're waiting for. This is the reason why you're going to be baptized in the Spirit. Here it is, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the disciples, again, had already received the Holy Spirit 40 days prior. 
But they were simply waiting on this promise. And Jesus said, you have not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You wait in Jerusalem until you have it. You don't go out and preach. You don't do anything until you receive this power. So when did the disciples receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Of course, we read about that in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all there with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled, some of them, all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. So 40 days, Jesus spends with his disciples, and after his resurrection, he sends into heaven. He says, you wait in Jerusalem till you receive this promise. We know it's 10 days, and the reason why we know it's 10 days is the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So Passover is a lunar celebration. Pentecost always follows it 50 days after Passover. Think back about when Jesus was crucified and all this. That starts to make sense, doesn't it? So he was with the disciples 40 days. And we know this, that, that on the day of Pentecost, which would be 50 days after the Passover, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So we know this, that in this case, that new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are separated by 50 days. Clearly a distinction between the two. Clearly there is a difference between the two experiences. Clearly that you don't receive them all at once. That there are separate experiences that are promised to us today. Each of them have their own purpose. One is this, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Number two, in order to spread or to be part of the kingdom of God or empowered, you must be born again. Now, I'm not saying that you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to be saved. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But clearly there are two promises and a distinction between the two. So if this was the only occurrence in the Bible, I would say this. I wouldn't be comfortable establishing a theology or a doctrine on one, one experience in the Bible. I don't think that's wise. A lot of people do that. They'll quote one verse in the Bible, make an entire belief out of it. You don't do that. Scripture upon Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. There's nothing wrong with saying, well, this happened in the Bible and this happened. But you don't base your entire life off one Scripture, right? So you'll find that the totality of Scripture. So is there any other occurrence in Scripture where this takes place? You bet, buddy. Let's just go to Acts chapter 10, verse 43. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And this is Peter speaking. While Peter was still speaking these words, look at this, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Fell upon those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out also on the Gentiles, Look at this, for they heard them speak with other tongues and magnified God. And then Peter answers, so there's no question about, well, maybe we're talking about water baptism here. So this is taking place. They're, they're born again. They receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit as we had, just as we had, just as when we were baptized in the Holy Spirit and we spoke in other tongues, should there be any reason why we forbid these people from being baptized in water? No, is of course the answer. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. These people heard the word, believed the word, were born again, and then they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized in water. The story is important because it shows people were still receiving 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate and distinct experience of salvation years after. When we read the book of Acts, we don't understand that the book of Acts covers 30 years. So we tend to look at the Bible kind of this way. It's kind of like the Gospels, three, three and a half years it's covering. The book of Acts is covering three decades. Three decades of, of the church, the early church. So from this point, there's five to seven years that have occurred between the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what Peter experiences here with these believers. So five to seven years, you're still having the same distinct experience taking place with people who believe and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because some people would argue this, well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the way that it happened with the disciples has ceased, that doesn't no longer take place. But this kind of, kind of defies that because five to seven years, you have the same thing taking place. So it wasn't just for the first disciples. No, it's for the church. It was a promise that was valid for the church, and we're still the church today, man. Again, if this were the second the second or the first of two examples, I still wouldn't base a whole doctrine on this because I don't think it's wise to do. But what if we find a third occurrence or a fourth occurrence? Shouldn't that start to pique our interest? Shouldn't we say a pattern is, is emerging? Of course, we don't have to look any further than Acts chapter 19, which is the, another 15 to 17 years in church history. So 15 to 17 years have now taken place since the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This time it's Paul. Paul is preaching. Hey, back when the last one we just read took place, Paul wasn't even saved yet. Paul was persecuting people still. Now we skip way ahead. Paul's preaching the gospel, and now he's not even in Jerusalem or Israel. He's in Turkey. He's in western Turkey preaching to the folks in Ephesus. So Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And look at this, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. You know, there's still believers today that they don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. And he said to them, into what baptism were you, or into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, there's some debate amongst Christians whether these people were born again or not. To be honest with you, it doesn't matter because the story, again, goes with the same pattern. So were these people that Paul speaking, were they already born again, or were they simply disciples of John? What does the word say? We find this, that the word disciples is usually just used in the Bible for the followers of Jesus. So it says in verse 1, in finding some disciples. In verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Believed, again, being another term used within Christianity. Uh, into what baptism were you baptized? So these people are called disciples. They were baptized, and they were obviously baptized in water for repentance of sins. But some people say, well, no, these are people that were John's disciples. They were simply waiting on uh, the Messiah to come. But it doesn't matter, because here's why. So Paul shares Christ with them in verse 4. And again, he's, when they say that they were baptized, verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord. 
Now, if you know anything about baptism, there are several baptisms in the Bible. Not all of them are water baptism. Obviously, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is one. You know that when you're saved, you're born again, you're baptized into Christ. You're baptized into his death and his resurrection. So when some people see this, they always assume water. There's no mention of water here whatsoever. So don't, always, don't, don't fill in the blanks for yourself. Just read the Bible, right? Read what the Word is saying. So when you're born again, you are baptized into Christ. You're baptized into the body of Christ. There's another mention of Scripture as that as well. So don't always assume it's always talk about water here because there's no mention of water here whatsoever. They were baptized in the name of the Lord. They were baptized into Christ. They were born again, okay? So when you read that, so Paul, that Paul shares of Christ, they were baptized into Christ. Again, he's not talking about water baptism. Again, people who are born again. At this point, they are born again. Then what does Paul do? He lays hands on them, he prays, and they receive then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if these people were born again prior or after the encounter with Paul, but simply they were born again and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Case in point. Another great example. These disciples were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Again, signifying new birth. Secondly, Paul lays hands on them. They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon these people who were baptized, and they spoke in tongues, and others prophesied. So this promise was experienced, again, over decades from the original outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see a pattern that is consistent, and we see a continuation of that promise experienced. Why on earth would that promise experience stop with the book of Acts. It's like saying this, well, miracles have stopped then. And if you go there, then salvation has stopped. Or I mean, where do we cut it off at, right? There is nowhere. It's either the word of God is alive, it's living, it's active, it's true, it's for today, or it's not. Which one is it? Which are we going to live by? Are we going to live by what we're comfortable with, or are we just going to simply live by faith according to God's word? Again, once you take this out, it all falls apart, church. Christianity just really all falls apart. So I don't know about you, I'm choosing to live my life by faith according to God's word. And that's the first thing you have to determine. And again, you can do that when you're born again. It's not uncomfortable to base and live your life according to God's word. Is it a trial? Is it a test? Sometimes sure it is. But once you make that determination, once you're saved, once you're born again, you are enabled, you can live by faith according to God's word. And you know, it's amazing that when you do that, how the word becomes alive to you. Some people say this, well, tongues have ceased, or, or tongues have, uh, because of their association with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because clearly we can see here in those three examples alone, where people were baptized in the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. Some people get freaked out about the tongues, so they want to explain the tongues away. So the best way to do this, I'm going to find some scriptures that I can kind of twist just a little bit to prove my point. So if tongues and the baptism of the Holy Spirit have an association, which they do, we'll talk about it later in the, in the series, so the best way I can do is just explain away tongues. And here's a verse that will even prove it. This is what they say. First Corinthians, whoever they are. Okay? First Corinthians 13, 8. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there, whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, they will vanish away. Again, some argue this for the reason why the baptism of the Holy Spirit is no longer valid. It ceased because there is no need for tongues. But they don't put it in context. Let's put it in context. Let's keep on reading, right? That's important to do. It's amazing how you can take things out of context, isolate things, and create an entire doctrine about them. That's a very, very uh, foolish thing to do. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, verse 9. Verse 10, 
But when that which is perfect has come, and there's only one who's perfect, and there's only one who's perfect who is coming, okay? It pretty much narrows it down, who we're talking about here. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Well, listen, when Jesus comes and sets up his, his millennial kingdom, you will not have to speak in tongues anymore. There will be no need for it. There will be no use for it. He is reigning and ruling from Jerusalem. The nations will come to him, the Bible says. It does, that gift doesn't need to be in operation anymore. Tongues will cease at that point, as will everything else that was mentioned in that verse. It's amazing how they just isolate one of those things, forget about all the other things that were just mentioned. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, so there will be any need for prophecy then. Tongues, knowledge, it will all vanish away when the perfect has come, when Jesus has come. Hey, listen, I don't know about you, Jesus hasn't came yet. He's not in Jerusalem right now, reigning and ruling. All right? I, don't know, I, don't know, I don't watch the news a whole lot because it just frustrates me, but I don't, the last time I checked, that hasn't happened yet, right? So the perfect has not yet come. The gift is still valid until then. So Jesus has not returned, and tongues will continue to be a sign. They'll continue to be a prayer language, and they will continue to be a spiritual gift. And there are three biblical uses for tongues, and we'll cover that later in the series. Once you get that into your brain, then it's so much easier to see what the Bible is talking about. That tongues that serve as a sign, and that there are tongues that are a, a spiritual gift, and that there are tongues that is a prayer language. When you see all three of those, it just simply changes everything for you. It takes away all the confusion. Again, some people get freaked out about tongues. You know why people get freaked out about tongues? Because of us. Because of the misuse of tongues. Most people wouldn't be so freaked out if we were taught accurately from the Word and we would practice it accurately. But the problem is, we take, man, I was in church once and man, the Spirit of God moved. And this crazy thing happened, this person happened, this person. Okay, when you look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit and you see an experience or you see, well, I remember when this happened. I'm not saying that wasn't what happened wasn't true or real. I'm just saying this everything that was associated with it doesn't mean it was spiritual doesn't mean that God approved of it. It just simply means this. That was the environment in which you were in. Are you following me? It's amazing how religious and how traditional we get quickly, especially when it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a very dangerous thing to do, by the way. So what happened when the disciples received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, after they spoke in tongues, what did they do? We're going to have a 10-day revival meeting. And people are going to come to the upper room, and we're just going to lay hands on people. They're going to speak in tongues. Is that what they did? No, it's not what they did. What did they do? They, what was the purpose of tongues? You will be a witness. You will receive power and you will be a witness and you will start from Jerusalem and go to the ends of the world. Listen, that was just spoken to them 10 days earlier. It was fresh in their memory. They knew exactly why they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. No, the disciples left the upper room and they went out into the temple courts where thousands of Jewish worshipers were there. Why were there thousands of Jewish worshipers there? Because they were there to celebrate Pentecost. And Pentecost is really a Greek term for a Jewish feast, which is called the Feast of Weeks. It's one of those feasts that requires Jewish worshipers to return to Jerusalem. What a good time to preach the gospel, amen? What a great time to preach to Jews who were from all over the world, who would have this encounter and go back to their nations. It's perfect. It shows us something, church. It shows us something that we as Pentecostals, we lose this. The main purpose for the baptism of the Holy Spirit is empowered to be a witness. True Pentecost is supposed to spill out of the four walls of the church. But you know what? The churches in our community and like it, 
that are what we call ultra-Pentecostal. Isn't it amazing how Pentecostal stays in the four walls? Isn't it amazing how the gifts of the Spirit only operate in church? Aren't the gifts of the Spirit supposed to operate outside of the church? I don't know about you that something doesn't click there. Maybe it's just this, that we don't understand that the reason we operate in the gifts is for a ministering purpose. The main ministering purpose is to reach lost people. Hey, wouldn't it be more powerful than this? Let's say, I'm not downplaying the gifts of the Spirit Church. Just listen to me, what I'm trying to say. So we have people who give a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, whatever, but why does that just take place in church? Why is it that you can't be in Walmart and you get the same gift and operation with someone who is a sinner? Wouldn't it be, don't you think it would have a greater impact then if you're going through Walmart and the Spirit of God speaks to you and says, that person needs prayer. And not only that, this is what this person is going through. And you go to that person and say, excuse me, I, I just want to share something with you. I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke, spoke to me and told me to come speak to you. If, if I'm out of order, please tell me. You come humbly, by the way. Don't come forcefully. And you come humbly and just share your heart. Can I pray with you? Or, or maybe God gave you a word to encourage them with. Or maybe he brings up a scripture. It's amazing how simple if we're just obedient and led by the Spirit and we operate in these gifts. And then that person comes to know Jesus serves him. Don't you think that would have a more powerful effect? Isn't that more in line with what the scriptures are talking about? Isn't that more in line with a Pentecostal demonstration? It's a Pentecostal witness. So the disciples were born again. Spirit baptized, empowered to witness. They didn't stay in the upper room, they left the upper room. That's exactly what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go into the temple courts. They, supposed, they were supposed to start preaching, sharing their faith, sharing their experience. What is going on? Are you people drunk? No, this is not, we're not drunk. It's, it's nine in the morning. This is the Holy Spirit. Began to share. So Peter was so full of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Peter's no preacher. Peter's a fisherman. You know, we forget that these people, you know, that spent time with Jesus, they're just normal people, normal jobs. He's a fisherman. He's not a trained speaker. But it is, an, and remember, just think about Peter's life. Peter has a hard time confessing Jesus to a servant girl. He's so fearful. He's in fear of his life before he's born again. That now that he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's empowered by the Spirit, this fisherman stands up in front of a crowd. We know this, at least 3,000 were there, right? Because 3,000 got saved. I think it's safe to assume that not everyone got saved that day. So there is a large crowd. Here is this untrained speaker in the temple courts, right outside of the central building of Judaism. I mean, right in the heart of Judaism, where all these uh, speakers, teachers of the law, um, uh, priests, all these who had great knowledge of the scriptures, are there worshiping. And up this fisherman stands up, who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, and begins to preach. He preached so convincingly that 3,000 people get saved because of his message. Church, that is Pentecost right there. That is the heart of what being Pentecostal is all about. And we've lost it in the Pentecostal church. And we've allowed ourselves to get marginalized as spooks, kooks, fruits, nuts, whatever you want to call us. And that's a shame because the power of God's promise is valid today. Are there spiritual manifestations? Yes. But they are not the prime product. They are the byproduct. The prime product is souls. The prime product is souls and a holy life, by the way. 
for the worshipers. They're gathered there to celebrate Pentecost. They're under conviction. What do they say to Peter? Peter, they say, what, do we do? what must we do to be saved? What shall we do? Peter responds this way, Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, look at this, repent. Boy, isn't that important? This is the first altar call of the New Testament church. What's he say first? Repent. Why do we lose that word in the church today, repent? Repent, every one of you, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. That's new birth, by the way. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, get saved, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, look at this. For the promise is for you, those who are listening, your children, it's generational, and to all those who are far off, as many as the Lord God, our God, will call. Is God calling people to repentance and salvation today? The gift is valid then. The gift has never ceased. The purpose has never ceased. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying, lift the promise of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't limited to you or your generation. It goes beyond you. The promise goes beyond those who are the first believers. It goes beyond geography. It goes on to the ends of the world. The promise is not limited to those that were there. It's an unlimited promise. Until Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, the promise is valid. So God is still calling people to salvation. He's still pouring out his spirit on his people. He's still empowering people to be a witness. And now more than ever, church, we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this message. It was an honor to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. If you have any questions or would like to find out more about Holt Assembly of God, please go to our website at www.holtag.org and connect with us there. Until our next broadcast of Life in the Spirit, I hope that you have a great day as you serve the Lord Jesus with a grateful heart.